You're listening to Mex Design Talk, the podcast for the Mex community, where we talk about emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. This episode was published on the 11th of February, 2016. Coming up in this edition, we talk about the user experience of creative apps and services. We catch up on news of mergers and acquisitions and events in the MEX community. Talk to Ed Rex, the CEO of JukeDeck, an artificial intelligence music startup, and finish with a user story all about digital breadcrumbs at a supper club. Welcome. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-pilot on the Mex podcast Rocketship. So we're at episode two now, and I just wanted to start by thanking the listeners for the feedback that we've had so far, which has been hugely encouraging and positive, but also to uh, encourage people to get in touch if they've got additional thoughts. Probably the best way to reach us is to tweet us at MexFeed on Twitter, uh, or you can have a look in the show notes and find other ways to drop us an email or leave a comment on the blog. But it's great to hear people's feedback on the format, on the topics that we're covering, uh, and let us know what you think as the podcast evolves, because obviously it's very much a work in progress at the moment. Um, But Alex, would you like to explain what we're going to look at for the theme in this episode? Mark, uh, today the theme is all about uh, creativity and creative modes. Um, And essentially, I think the the, the main thing that we'll be talking about are are digital services uh, which nurture users' creativity. Uh, And that essentially just means services that uh, assist in uh, drawing out creative tendencies that uh, I guess all of us have at some level. Um, at a very basic level, that can be something like Instagram with its, with its uh, easy-to-apply filters through to more high-fidelity sketching uh, applications with Apple Pencil, for example. Well, that's one of the interesting things about this area, I think, is that it is a real sliding scale, this creative mode. It can be quite a simple manifestation, quite basic, where it's just someone applying a little bit of creative something to some work they've done, or even a piece of content that they've consumed and found elsewhere, right through to something very original and quite involved and and detailed and, and high fidelity. And I think it's an important area to look at because it's really quite underaddressed within digital services. If you look at that overall balance of where the efforts have been put in developing new digital services. So much of it is based around the desire to consume. And there's this old adage that goes around of the 99% and the 1%. We're not talking here in economic terms. We're talking here in terms of the balance between consumption and creativity. There's this kind of rule of thumb that on the web, There's about 1% of people who are actively creating stuff and about 99% who are consuming. But the BBC actually did a study where they tried to dispel that myth a bit and said, you know what, actually, when we look at this in detail, this was in 2012, they did this. They found that about 77% of people are actually actively participating towards digital experiences. And 
the majority of that, about 60%, are doing it through quite easy methods, just things like sharing media or making comments on things. But they are creative acts in themselves. Uh, but 17% are doing more intense forms of creative activity where you might get a bit more involved or in some slightly more high fidelity stuff. And actually only about 23% were completely passive in their engagement with digital experiences. And yet we don't really see as much attention given to the user experience of creativity. So we thought it was high time we had a chat about it in the episode. Um, but maybe you could remind people about the kind of format that we're planning to do it in with uh, the podcast, this idea we've got of the, the show and tell. Well, Mark, I think what we'll, we'll, we'll do a little bit is, is just draw out some, um, some, some products or some, some services that are, are just out there and, and just quite common uh, and commonly available. Uh, and talk a little bit about them and, and how they fit into this overall theme and and really use them to show what uh, what possibilities there are, in fact, for uh, nurturing users' creativity. So did you manage to come across any interesting examples when you were looking into this? Yes, absolutely. I mentioned uh, a moment ago the Instagram app that uh, I think all of our listeners must be familiar with. Roughly at the same time that Instagram got started, I discovered an app that was uh, slightly less well-known called Hipstamatic, which is also uh, ostensibly a camera app. There are a couple of quite clear uh, differences as well as similarities between them. Both Instagram and Hipstamatic allow you to take a picture with your camera phone and to modify the picture in certain ways. With Instagram, they refer to them as filters, and you put a filter on the picture and it changes the way it looks. Hipstamatic came out of a desire to play around more with the notion of uh, photography, and it allows budding photographers or people interested in, in being fairly creative with the way they deal things to, to choose a combination of lens and, uh, and film and this come, comes, uh, creates a, a range of different outcomes. Um, when they first got started, there were sort of maybe a dozen of them, and, and, uh, and I got quite familiar with them, and I, and I was aware of how you could combine them to, to achieve certain effects. With the number and range thereof than there are now, I, I simply can't keep up. But it's still a, a wonderful little app. Produces some, some, it can produce some, some, some uh, attractive photography. So like with traditional photography, it's both the film that you're choosing in the digital sense and also the filter that you're then applying which affect the overall photograph. It's the combo of the two as opposed to sort of one combined creative act that you impose on it. Yeah, yes, that's right. And and there's a certain uh, nostalgia to it because it, it sort of thinks about old cameras that had lenses that perhaps didn't fit on quite right. So there was a bit of light leaking onto, onto the uh, exposure in a way that shouldn't be there, but produces an effect that is... Uh, can be quite attractive. But while Hipstamatic itself, like Instagram, because it, it enables creativity, that enabling effect is in itself encouraging people to, to create. But one of the things that Hipstamatic has done over and above the app itself is to, uh, to produce the Hipstamatic Snap magazine. Now, this first came out, in fact, when uh, the Apple newsstand was launched, uh, but it's now a standalone app of its own. 
And it's really a a rather nice piece of photojournalism that takes you through different places, different foods, even cocktails, and and also shares the work of uh, photographers and other artists. And presumably the majority of that content is photography sourced from the Hipstamatic app itself. That's exactly right. And, And the Snap magazine has little buttons around the the app um, that allow you to, to click on them and see exactly what which combo of film and lens was used to create that particular effect, which then encourages the user either to, to purchase those that, that film or, or that lens or, or the combination of the two, um, or if they already happen to have it, to, to go out and use it and, and try to uh, replicate the effects that they've seen, which are often some some superbly good photos that are actually sourced from the hipstamatic community. It's an interesting example. I mean, I took a look at this when you put it into our research document for the podcast. And one of the things which struck me is how they've obviously given thought to that circular process, if you like, of people consuming the magazine, but then wanting to be moved on to a creative act themselves and giving those easy links so that you can look at a piece of content, think that looks interesting. Now I'm inspired to do something similar myself. Here's an easy way for me to go off and use those same technologies, use those same film choices and filter choices to create something similar. So there's that nice link with the the inspiration there. The other thing which interested me about it, and I wanted to ask you about, was how they seem to have bought in other forms of content to go alongside the photography. Was that something that, that you'd noticed, this idea that they've clearly taken something like, I don't know, a snap of a cocktail or something, but then they've gone off and invited a bartender to explain how that cocktail is made. So you get a written piece alongside the photography. Do you think that was always a, a conscious part of what they're trying to do with this, to kind of make those links between the different uh, forms of creativity, if you like, uh, image output and text output and so on? Well, I think that's that's interesting because I guess it allows the the user not only to experiment with uh, the photography side of things, but it to, but to experiment that with their creativity offline as well. And I suspect that's probably part of it, as well as the realization that uh, the likely readers are going to be people who might want to uh, drink cocktails, practice making cocktails or in some cases go off on travels or, or, or other things. It, it's also quite interesting, Marek, that actually the other thing that they've done is they, they create a, a playlist uh, on Spotify for every one of their new publications, for each edition of the publication. And, and again, that, that, that playlist could potentially take you to, to a new uh, voyage of discovery of consumption of media, but then also possibly of doing some form of creativity, which could be uh, as simple as creating a playlist. Well, it makes me think back to the work you and I were doing in the summer last year, where we were thinking about what we call that moment of intersection between when you're consuming and then when you're prompted to go and do something creative. And one of the things that I recall from that project was that there was a real magic around what happens when you get multiple different mediums integrating with each other. And in fact, the very connected nature of what we can do with digital devices, particularly things like smartphones and tablets, which are inherently connected devices from the outset, 
is that you can make it very easy to jump between those multiple different formats and you can make it very easy for people to see that whole cycle of creativity and uh, integrate with it at different points and go off and riff on things of their own accord, which I suppose is one of the real beauties about being creative in the digital environment as opposed to in an offline sense is that you can hopefully do more to facilitate those kind of moments of intersection. Barry, do you have any examples of, of uh, devices or apps that perhaps enable that, that leap? Well, I've, I'm always interested when you see um, multiple different ways of doing things, multiple different ways of, say, inputting information coming together. I mean, personally, I've always been quite a fan of things like the smart stylus that you get for different devices obviously we're seeing it now i think um, in the mass market with the apple pencil but there have been devices prior to that like the microsoft surface like the samsung note devices where you have those additional dimensions to what you can do because you've got this very sensitive pressure sensitive stylus which you can use to add a different kind of feel to the kind of creative work that you're doing Obviously, the first example which springs to mind is sketching or note-taking, but there's more to it than that as well, because a lot of these devices now have built in, for instance, ways that you can capture areas of the screen with the stylus and then send it off somewhere else and do something interesting with that content, or even um, identify what you've captured from the screen and actually use that piece of content in its native format rather than just an image. And it raises all sorts of different creative possibilities. So yeah, anything like that where you add that additional input dimension, be it a stylus or things where, for instance, you can do things with smart voice input or maybe with um, uh, depth sensing around 3D interfaces, they just seem to me to open up so many more possibilities than if you're just using a flat touchscreen slate, as it were. And for, for me, Marek, it, it makes me think a little bit about modes of consumption that one of the groups that I worked with at Max previously uh, was looking at and how the different modes of consumption can then lead potentially to new forms of creativity. And, and I, th I think there were a couple of things that were really interesting talking to, to some of the, the younger members of the group um, who, for example, had re referred to a, a mode of consumption they called learning. Uh, and it was just effectively learning by sitting and watching videos on, say, YouTube on how to do something or how to make something. Quite straightforward. And, and one of the examples that they gave was uh, how to make an origami swan. Lots of videos for that on, on YouTube and, and across the web. But having then watched this, you go off and, and, and learn how to grab a piece of paper and, and make a swan or, or something else. And that contrasted quite, quite vividly with another mode that they refer to as, as inspiration, where they were much more highly engaged with looking at the works of other creators, whether they were video or, 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 or static images, and then taking that to inform their own creativity whether it was in the same form or in a different form, again, whether they were planning to, to, to paint or whether they were planning to photograph or to make videos. But the point was that it was then informing their creativity and, and it was a form of deep uh, indulgence into other people's work which could spur new thoughts and ideas for their own. 
Well, this is, I think, where we get to the heart of why the user experience of creativity is so nuanced and why it's actually quite difficult to achieve a good user experience within creative apps and services. Because as you say, there's such variety in the sort of things which can inspire people to be creative. And the possibilities, I think, are really infinite. Once someone is inspired to go and do something, they may go off and do something completely unexpected and original with that piece of inspiration of their own. But what you and I found, I think, during that project last summer when we were looking at this was that there are paths which are perhaps more likely than others. As you say, there's a certain sort of context which people are in sometimes when they're consuming something which leads more naturally to one kind of creative output rather than the other. And I think you can start to trace some quite interesting paths. I seem to remember you and I were talking a little bit back then around this idea of a a kind of equation that you could look at where you could look at the mode the user is in, i.e. whether they're uh, intending to consume or create, you could then look at the state that they're in at that time, like the environmental factors influencing their context. And then you could also look, for instance, at the medium that they're keen to output to or that they have access to. And that by analysing those three things, you can start to get an understanding of the kind of user experience requirements which might govern how you design an app or a service to best meet those needs. Um, but one of the things which becomes very apparent when you look at that equation is just how many variations, possible permutations that you could end up with uh, and how difficult it is to focus in on something which is going to meet everyone's needs all of the time. So it kind of raises the, the question of, well, what's your best approach if you are trying to design apps and services for this kind of creative behavior? I mean, what do you think? Is it best here to try and actually put some kind of arbitrary limitations on the users so that they um, are somewhat constrained and they can channel their creativity in the hope that you can give them a good experience for doing that rather than trying to cater to that sort of wild west of we'll just try and help you do all of the things all of the time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting, Mark, because ultimately there there's an infinite range of possibilities as to as to the outputs. But it's 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 uh, I think in achieving a balance between setting boundaries and limitations to what can be done, and at the same time enabling the user to do whatever it is that they're trying to do. So it's, it's creating a balance between enabling and, and, and limiting. I, uh, I forget the name of, of the app that uh, you once showed me that had effectively no limitations to what you could do, um, so long as it was you know, possible to do in an app. And, and it was chaos and uh, very difficult to, to really achieve anything of, of any sense. But if you look at, and I'm sort of coming back to this idea of, of photo apps, because there's, there's, there's really quite a nice history of, of how things like Instagram came into being. And, and if you think about the iPhone, which was a very, the, the, the first iPhone had a very basic camera and, and the notion of iPhoneography uh, came about and, and was quite interesting. But the, the, the limitations of the device uh, and both the hardware and the software within the device um, created a, a new form of art that was referred to as iPhoneography. Then the App Store came along and that enabled things like Instagram and Hipstamatic and dozens of other photo apps to come into being. And they both enable certain possibilities with all their filters, but they also create a certain limitations because the filters aren't endless. 
Um, and quite soon you begin to understand what filters have been used um, and, and, and why for, for different looks and feels. Yeah, I think with almost all of those which have grown to mass appeal, they do share that characteristic of they choose some sort of arbitrary limitations around the experience so that people, if you like, feel they have license to and a sense of possibility that they can actually create something meaningful in a relatively short amount of time. Because creativity can be quite an intimidating thing if you don't think of yourself as a creative person. And in fact, I'd say most people, even those who are quite accomplished creatively, rarely think of themselves as being creative people. And it can be quite daunting to sit there in front of the metaphorical blank page and think, right, I'm going to create something from scratch here. So those kind of limitations, I think, can help prompt people to overcome that kind of creative block. And that can be a nice feature of the user experience in that regard. Um, but also, hopefully, it can encourage wider participation in these things from people who wouldn't otherwise attempt them. And, and again, that I think is one of the positives around digital is that you can hopefully encourage people to, to do that kind of thing. I went also down the, the photographic route when I was thinking about an example for the show and tell here. And I started to think back actually to a group that we had at MEX, I think in 2011, led by a guy called Mika Pekka Hansky from Idean a Design Agency. And they were tasked with investigating new forms of creativity that had been enabled by mobile devices. And they started to look at the idea that you could use the movement data from a phone. So the data coming in from things like the accelerometer and the GPS to understand a bit about people's physical movement. And then you could transpose that onto digital photographs in the same way that if people kept a photograph, say, of a loved one in their wallet, over time, the physical movement of them moving that wallet around the place or walking with it in their pocket would gradually start to add a sort of pattern and aging to the photograph. And they thought, well, why couldn't we do this with digital photographs? You know, people's phones are in their pockets just the same way as their wallets are. We could start to use those data um, to actually you know, create that artificial digital aging, if you like, to photographs and add that sort of sense of memory to them which I thought was a fascinating concept at the time. And it got me thinking about that idea of, well, what comes next with digital imaging? Yeah, we've reached a point now where, like you say, with the iPhone, for instance, the sensors now on those cameras are so good. You can create such high fidelity images now from these devices that you start to think about, well, what's going to be the next big leap forward? And I came across a company called Pelican Imaging, who are one of several, actually, that are working on this concept that actually the next thing you need to do is not just improve the individual lenses and sensors, which are in camera phones. You need to start using multiple of them and then pairing them with a powerful GPU, a graphics processor, uh, to combine the images coming in from those multiple different sensors so that you can add additional dimensions to photography be it extra quality, because actually if you're using, say, 10 relatively low resolution sensors, you can build a composite image, which is much better quality than you would get from one higher resolution sensor. But you can also do other things like start to add, for instance, a sense of depth to photographs, or you can add in some kind of additional detailed information which wouldn't be there just using a single sensor and it got me thinking well perhaps this is actually the next big step change that we're going to see in smartphone photography and in photography in a, the, the wider sense is when we start to get these multi-sensor arrays being embedded within mobile devices 
Have you had a chance to, to look at this at all? Do you think there are some possibilities around what might happen once we, we get access to those new data? Once again, I suppose the, the possibilities are, are pretty much endless. But you could think about having both still and video imagery being shot at the same time or possibly different effects or uh, being, being achieved simultaneously. Or possibly you might look at having uh, an image that is uh, at one scale, but then if you zoom into it, then you have new images that appear within it. Um, almost as if each pixel might contain new images of their own that actually form that pixel. Yeah, one of the interesting things about that technique with photography, and you actually see it to a limited extent within devices like, for instance, some of the Nokia phones, which are using the very um, high megapixel count sensors, is that the photograph that they output um, is inherently computed. So at a pixel level, for instance, if you're using something like the Nokia 1020 or the Nokia 808 device, they take a photograph at 41 megapixels and then they um, reduce it down to, I think, a five megapixel image where they're basically making a computed choice about what each pixel looks like when they do that downscaling effect. And the end result is you get these very clean looking pure images and they called it the, the pure view technology because of that. Uh, but I think that effect is going to be even more powerfully felt when you're using these multi-sensor arrays because basically you can actually give the user a degree of control and say well what do you want the final photo to look like because we can do all of this graphics processing in the background where you can say you know what i kind of like this feel to things and i want you to be concentrating more on those tones within the photograph and you could have that sliding scale effect after the actual moment of capture where you can in real time vary how that kind of computation is going on and get very different results. Yes, absolutely. And, and I suppose if you even take it one step further, once you go from having multiple sensors to possibly having multiple lenses, then at that point you can start talking about creating quite simple, uh, quite simply rather, uh, 3D effects um, right in your phone. And it sh you know, the, the, the capacity of the phone to do that sort of thing, uh, the processor capacity is is pretty much there already i think what do you think about this notion of depth as well because that's one of the other things which becomes possible once you have multiple lenses is that you can take multiple photographs from slightly different perspectives and you can build up that sense of the depth of a scene that you're capturing and it makes me think about what might happen once we start having consumption devices which are capable of using that depth in interesting ways I mean, do you feel like we're on the cusp here at the moment of, um, with things like, for instance, VR headsets, actually starting to open up the, that kind of medium to the mass market? Because at the moment, if you want to see anything in 3D, you're talking about pretty serious yeah, industrial cameras being used to capture that and it has to be delivered through a very specific environment, you know, usually in a specially equipped cinema but now, potentially, if you put this into the hands of the average person on their phone, you get the possibility that you can close that loop between being able to create content with depth and consume it on something like a VR headset. I mean, do you think that's got the possibility to take off? VR and, and uh, virtual reality and, and, and augmented reality are two subjects that have been thrown about for quite some time and have come and gone 
And I think the reality is that the limitations on uh, enabling technologies have prevented it taking off. But I think we are now on the cusp of being able to make this uh, really on, on, a, on, a, on a mass basis. Um, I noticed, uh, or I've been noticing, in fact, recently on, uh, by following various uh, venture capitalists on, on Twitter, that there is definitely a lot of interest in investing in companies that are doing work in the fields of virtual and augmented reality. Um, and I think I saw that uh, Y Combinator is, is uh, encouraging applicants that are involved in VR and AR. I suspect that in the next 12 to 24 months, we are going to see some quite exciting products on the market. It does feel like an era at the moment that has got some interesting potential to open up new forms of creativity. But I guess we should uh, move things along a little bit, but perhaps also remind people that there are some outputs from our various looks at this topic over the years on the mobileuserexperience.com site, in particular, that project that we did about the intersection of consumption and creativity has various different insights and some examples of, for instance, user interface techniques that you can use to cater to, to that kind of desire within users, uh, and also you know some additional background on various examples. So I'd encourage people to go and have a look on mobileuserexperience.com if you're interested in following up. And we'll also put that into the show notes which accompany the podcast. Uh, but one of the other things which we wanted to try and uh, experiment with a bit on this podcast is using it as somewhere where we can catch up on some of the news that's going on in the mix community. And we have 12,500 people around the world now who are engaged with mechs in some way, shape or form, be it people who have been to the events or people who are following us on social media or reading the, the mobileuserexperience.com site and the newsletters. And there's always a great deal going on. So we wanted to try a little bit in each episode of the podcast where we just try and catch up on a bit of that and mention some of the interesting things we've noticed among people who have participated in the MEX community. So have you spotted anything since the last episode that you wanted to cover, Alex? Well, Marek, one of the uh, exciting things is that way back in 2009, an app known as TouchType uh, was shortlisted for a MEX User Experience Award. TouchType these days is known as SwiftKey. Um, SwiftKey, is, as people will probably know, has recently been acquired by Microsoft for a quarter of a billion dollars. Um, and we had uh, the CTO, Ben Medlock, of SwiftKey speak at MEX in 2011 on techniques for making user experience feel natural and innate. Um, and I guess those are parts of the reasons why Microsoft has acquired SwiftKey. I remember the presentation well, and it's actually up on mobileuserexperience.com. So if anyone's interested, I encourage you to go back and take a look at the video because a lot of the, if you like, user experience characteristics, which I think have made SwiftKey um, such a popular app for people. Uh, ben talks about those in detail and how they arrived at those within SwiftKey. So it's great to see that being recognized and being taken out to that wider scale. And if anyone's interested in having a look at how that developed over the years, um, there's that video there of his session from 2011, which you can take a look at on the mobileuserexperience.com site. One of the other things that I noticed as well, which I've been tracking, if you like, across the market is what's going on around uh, M&A, mergers and acquisitions within 
the design sector at the moment. Basically, there is a great deal of activity happening and I think is going to continue to happen over the next couple of years where companies of various stripes are getting very interested in buying digital agencies, user experience agencies. And the latest one is one called Aperto, which was bought by IBM. Uh, and there's a, a piece uh, on mobileuseraxperience.com called Acquisitions and Long-Term Growth Strategies for Design Agencies, which I wrote back in September 2015, where we went out and we talked to a few agencies, which we've always admired, and asked them about their thoughts on what's going on within the sector and how you plan for organic long-term growth to stay as an independent agency, or potentially the sort of deals which might be done in the future where you uh, may see more of these smaller niche agencies with the expertise around user experience becoming part of big digital services firms like the IBMs and the Accentures of this world. And what do you think is the reason for IBM acquiring Aperto at this point in time? What we're starting to see happen is that uh, at the largest global scale, companies are realizing that user experience design thinking, whatever name you want to give it, but essentially the notion that you can learn a great deal by looking at the detail of how customers are behaving and then driving your company's strategy from that uh, is becoming a very popular way of doing things. And yeah, clearly this has been at the heart of what we've been espousing with MEX for all the years, uh, 11 or so years that we've been running the initiative. And what that's meant is that these firms, which do these very large-scale digital infrastructure projects like the uh, the IBMs of this world uh, are finding themselves needing to be able to deliver those kind of detailed user experience skills to their global clients. And one of the ways they can do that is to build that kind of capability in-house, which, for instance, IBM is, is also making uh, big efforts to do. But another is to go out and cherry-pick some of the smaller independent agencies that have those kind of skills and bring them in-house. Uh, and it's something I think we're going to see a great deal more of over the next little while. Clearly, it's not the, the growth strategy for all agencies. And if you go and read that piece um, that's up on mobileuserexperience.com, you'll see there are various different views from the people who are running these agencies at the moment as to whether or not they feel that the independent route or scaling up and joining um, these larger firms is the way forward. Uh, but I think we are going to see many more examples of this before we get a clear sense of, of how it's playing out. So another company that is looking at uh, driving forward its digital strategy is our very own Ordnance Survey. And Ben Scott Robinson, who's the head of digital at Ordnance Survey, spoke at MEX last year in a, um, in a talk that I found fascinating about the challenges of digital transformation for a brand like OS Maps that has very strong emotional attachments for a lot of its uh, existing users. Now, um, one of the things that Ordnance Survey is doing is 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 transforming its business into one that is uh, available on your smartphone, and as part of that, they currently have a new map trade-in offer, uh, which allows you to send in your old paper maps and receive vouchers to buy new editions, combining both a physical map and a downloadable version for your smartphone. Yeah, this was one of the interesting innovations that 
Ben was talking about in his session at MEX last year, which uh, I found fascinating as well, that they have this balance, if you like, between people who've got this real strong personal affinity for those old paper ordnance survey maps, which if you're a hiker or biker or explorer in the UK, they're like the de facto maps that you use to get that detailed mapping of the countryside uh, and you know the, the whole country, in fact. Um, and they clearly have that um, strong kind of personal attachment for people. And yet they know that there's a generation of people coming up who are much more accustomed to digital mapping. And they've come up with this neat way of essentially you can buy the paper map, but it comes with a way of linking in to the app so that when you buy the paper map, you also get the same map area on your device, which I think is quite a neat way of addressing both of those needs and taking that very broad view, if you like, of what user experience really is, that it's not just about the digital channels, it's about that whole experience. Uh, the last couple of bits I wanted to cover in our, our news from the MEX community are um, Made in Brunel, uh, who are the group of students at Brunel University who every year put on uh, an event called Made in Brunel, where they show off the kind of projects that they've been working on, are doing something they're calling the Craft Cafe uh, at the Oxo Tower, which is going to run over the weekend of 12th to 14th February in London. And essentially, they've set themselves the challenge of redesigning what London could be like. So no small task, but it's essentially a free facilitated set of design workshops where anyone can come along and get involved in the conversation and talk to these very clued up design students about some of their thoughts on this and uh, participate in the activities as well. And we've been working with Brunel University for a number of years now involving the students uh, at the MEX event uh, and always find them a fantastic bunch of people to work with. So that could be an interesting one if you find yourself in London on the South Bank over that weekend. And the last thing is a quick announcement about our MEX 16 event, which is coming up on the 17th and 18th of March in London. This is actually uh, the last few days to grab one of the tickets at the Pioneer price, um, where you get a, an early bird discount. So if you're um, interested in coming along to the event, now is the time to head over to the MEX website. We'll leave uh, links in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com to grab yourself a ticket to the event. Fantastic. Great. Well, I would remind people that um, we'd love to hear feedback on how you think we're getting on with this. It's an evolving format. We're keen to hear ideas and where you'd like it to go. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Alex or I, send us a tweet at mexfeed on Twitter or have a look in those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com to find some other ways to get in touch. We'd very much like to hear from you. is my interview with Ed Rex, the CEO of Duke Deck. In addition to supplying the music which you hear on this podcast, Ed and Duke Deck come from a pretty diverse background, and that was one of the things which caught my attention when I was first introduced to him by Andrew Millward, who some of you will know as the co-host of previous MEX events. 
Ed's background is primarily in musical composition, yet in the course of putting together this startup Duke deck, he's also had to get to grips with the challenges of user experience within the startup environment, how you evolve and iterate based on what you're seeing in user interviews, but also in the data they're now getting since they launched the service. So we end up talking about some of his background, but also some of the challenges inherent in bringing a startup to market and some of the plans that they have for the future around building out this artificial intelligence engine they've created and the kind of things you might be able to do with the musical output. Don't forget, you can find links to the things Ed and I talk about and to Duke Deck itself in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And also Ed will be a speaker at our upcoming MEX16 event in London on the 17th and 18th of March. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, People who've been listening to previous episodes of this podcast, I think, will already have heard an example of your work because we have been using music generated by Duke Deck as the intro for the podcast. But perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what it is you're actually doing with Duke Deck at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first off, thanks for using it. Always super exciting to uh, to hear how people are using our music. Um, and actually, our first focus has been uh, providing music for video, so it's great to see it um, kind of expanding into into podcasts organically. Yeah, what we're doing with Duke Deck uh, is we we've started this company uh, built around this this software we're building that um, that's artificial intelligence for music composition. So it's software that um, that helps you. Uh, as a user, write uh, and come up with and create unique music um, at the touch of a few buttons, really. So the idea is uh, you don't have to be a musician. You can come onto our site um, and you can you can press a few buttons and you can create this unique piece of music, listen to it, see if you like it. You can create as much as you want. You can then download it and it's royalty-free and you can use it. You get a bunch of free tracks every month and you can use it in whatever you're doing. So we're, we're essentially kind of, we've got this music system for people like you uh, and anyone um, to use. So I became aware of it, first of all, when uh, Alan Drew Muirwood, uh, who's co-hosted the next event with me in the past, sent me a link to it. And I was I think I was on a mobile device at the time, went across to the Duke Deck site, and literally within a minute, I'd managed to produce a track which sounded to an admittedly not very musical person myself, but sounded like a good bit of work. Now, How did you get to that point of being able to deliver that with an interesting and polished user experience? Because what you're describing there is presumably quite a complex back end, and yet it's ended up being uh, an easy to understand and pretty straightforward user experience when you come to it as an end user. Yeah, well, I mean, for, the first answer is with a bit of help from Andrew. So he uh, he actually gave us uh, some advice in our quite early days about uh, about getting out there, going speaking to users, figuring out figuring out what they want, and actually how to figure out what they want. Um, so that was that was incredibly useful. But I mean, essentially, yeah, you're you're right to identify that it's a complex backend. It's a really complex backend. I mean, we, I, we've been working on it um, for years, really. Uh, I started the prototype a few years ago, and um, for a long, you know, there, there was a lot of R and D that went into it. Uh, and even kind of a year ago, we had this, the, the, this what we thought was a cool backend, but but no real idea yet of how to put that in people's hands. Um, and so, I mean, what we did is we we just kind of 
went and spoke to a lot of video creators, we quickly realized that video creation has this problem um, that kind of the music's hard to come by, uh, the royalties are a problem, um, that you know people like the idea of having unique music, but actually that's pretty much impossible to get. Um, so we realized it was a problem, went and spoke to lots of people about how they currently get music, and you know, quite quickly realized that that what people really want is something something kind of simple, something that doesn't involve a lot of very musical input. Um, you know, because because most people making videos, uh, you know, won't necessarily be um, be musicians. Um, and so we so we kind of realized what we wanted to do was was give people a tool that they could understand if they weren't musicians, that that used the kinds of inputs, the kinds of words. That, that anyone uses when describing music. So we've tried to keep the musical input at the moment to a, to a minimum. Um, yeah, and, and that it was kind of a long process of experimentation to figure out exactly how that should work and what that should be. But what we've settled on is kind of basically using, using letting people set words for moods, for kind of styles of music, um, sometimes for instruments. So you can say, like, I want an uplifting piece of folk music that features a piano and that's quick. Um, but that's the kind of level of input you have um, you don't you don't have to sort of choose what key it's in um, and that sort of thing, which are which are kind of more inherently musical things. So let's go back a bit. Were you coming at this when you started Duke Deck as a company from a musician's background or from what you could call a, a technologist's background? Yeah, um, very much a musician's background. Uh, so, I, yeah, my background is, is, to is totally in music, really. Um, I'm a composer. Um, and yes, yeah, spent spent kind of my whole childhood and education studying music, in particular composition uh, and music theory, and a bit about the um, science of the perception of music, and all this stuff kind of fascinated me. Um, I always liked maths, but I'd never done any coding because you know um, back then people didn't really do coding in schools, not 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 where I went anyway. Um, and yeah, but but then kind of I graduated uh, from university, having done music, uh, and was fascinated. Uh, with this idea of kind of what makes good music um, and and technology as well, kind of what are the possibilities of technology? And these two ideas for me kind of came together um, to make me think, well, maybe computers can get involved in the music writing process. Maybe computers can write music. And if they can, what can they actually do? Like imagine the kind of the amazing stuff you'd be able to do, you'd be able to give people if computers could write music. So so that's the background I came at it from. I wasn't a technologist um, but then at that point, I kind of tried to become one in order to build this. So I kind of, I learned to code in order to build a prototype, um, which was really useful, but really slow. Um, uh, yeah, coding, coding is, is uh, yeah, I don't know, it's, uh, it's doable, um, but it's, uh, I, I found it a bit tricky to start with, definitely. Why do you think that interest in the technology side of things developed? I mean, at what point did you become aware that that combination of a digital experience and uh, a musical experience, a musical composition experience could be an interesting combination together. Was there a particular thing which sparked that particular insight? Yeah, I think it was probably a couple of things. I think firstly, I did a course at university on, um, yeah, as I said, on the perception of music and in kind of in what, what makes good music, which is a question that, um, no one really has answered, uh, and for that reason, I found it completely fascinating. Um, and I've thought about this a lot as a composer, because um, you're always trying to think, well, how can I make this piece as good as possible? But you don't really have a, you know, a benchmark against which to, to judge it. So I found that a really interesting question. So that course in general kind of inspired me to think about this stuff. And then actually, the second thing was that um, my girlfriend was out studying at, uh, at Harvard. She was doing an introduction to computer science, and I went and visited her and. 
went to a lecture and it was kind of, you know, one of the first lectures of the semester um, explaining how computer science actually isn't this uh, this untouchable field that you can't get involved in. And actually, you, it's quite easy to get going. And I, I remember coming out of that lecture and just thinking... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a go. I think it's I think it's worth a shot. Um, I, there was also the the handy factor that I was a musician who just left university, so I obviously didn't have a job or anything holding me back. Um, so uh, so yeah, I think it, it all just sort of came together and seemed like the right thing to do. So, do you think it was a help or a hindrance having had the background in musical composition when you came to start teaching yourself how to code? I think it was a help in tr in doing what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do, which is kind of generative music, algorithmic composition. I don't think I don't think I could have done that, or we could be doing that without that musical background. And actually, our whole team now are are all musicians, really good musicians. I think that really helps. Um, as regards kind of uh, music and coding, I, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I do think programming actually is very like making music in many ways. You've got this. Um, you're basically building up this big program or this big piece of music, um, but but as you're doing it, you're kind of you're trying to keep the overarching structure in mind, but you're focused on the on the small elements. You know, you're focused on a bar or a phrase at a time, kind of like you're you're focused on an individual function when you're writing a program. Um, I do think I do think they're very similar. You you have to think about things in the same way. Um, I mean, at the same time, you know, obviously. Uh, that yeah, they are vastly different in many many other ways. Um, and yeah, I think I I probably wouldn't have picked it up as easily had I not done quite a bit of maths. But you know, I've got to be honest with myself. I didn't pick it up that easily. Um, it's yeah, it's uh, it's worth doing, but it's a bit tricky. <laughs> so you're saying that you did some thinking about what uh, at an objective level, if you like, if you can ever be objective with music, makes a good piece of music and makes people respond well to it. Is that something which has carried across into how you're thinking about the user experience for how Duke Deck delivers its music creation? Uh, have you been looking into what makes that a good experience at an individual level for people? Well, I think it's carried across in our focus on trying to make music that people like. I think when you're um, and I think this does kind of come into user experience because when you're, uh, you know, when you're when you're doing generative music, when you're writing a program like this, it, you know, it can be tempting to experiment and to, you know, there are lots of things you can do with algorithms um, to introduce sort of random elements and that sort of thing. And you know, it's relatively easy to build a program that you know will kind of create random music that hasn't been heard before. But you know, in order to actually be a product that people are going to use. Um, and I think this, you know, to, be, to an extent, this applies to musicians, to artists as well. Like you, basically, I, I really think you have to be focused on what people like. It's like in, you know, when you're building products, you you have to build a product that people like, that people want to use. And it's the same when you're writing music. You have to write music. I think that that people like and that people people want to listen to, want to use in in their products, in their videos, whatever. So we are. So we were, and I've always been focused on that as a composer. Not all of my composer friends have. Um, many are more avant-garde than me. I've always been quite sort of populist and just like trying to write music that people want to hear. Um, but so that's what we focus on as a company. We're trying really at the moment to write for our, to get our software to write music that people that people hear and they think, yeah, you know what, that works. That does the job for me. That that's a nice piece of music, and I can see that backing my holiday video or whatever. And have you had that moment personally yet with something created by Duke Deck? Because presumably as a composer, and having had that musical background, I'm guessing you've got some pretty exacting standards for yourself on what sounds good. Have you been able with the artificial intelligence engine that you've got so far to get to that point where you've created a bit of music on Duke Deck and thought, yeah, you know, that, that sounds all right? 
Yeah, I mean, I have. To be honest, it's. Um, I, I think I think this all the time, but it feels like it's just happened. I mean, firstly, we yeah we we are um, we are quite hard on ourselves, and we are always listening to it and thinking. You know, we have to be thinking not what's good about this, but what's wrong with it. How can we make it better? Um, and so, you know, it's never been yet. Uh, you know, kind of perfect, and what, what we want it to be. But I'm I'm kind of hoping that it never will be. In a way, I think we always need to be pushing forward. This isn't, I think, a project that you finish. This is a project that keeps getting better and keeps growing. Um, but I have recently. Uh, I mean, we actually just last night released a new style of music, um, solo piano music. We're using some new techniques to to do it. And I mean, genuinely, I, I listen to some of the music, and it really affects me emotionally. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd encourage you to kind of give it a go. Um, it, it really, you know, it's it's kind of amazing to I think to hear this music um, that is written by AI, just to, to just to to be able to press a few buttons and get it back and have it actually affect you emotionally. Um, so yeah, I do think it's starting to happen. I mean, at the same time, I think two years ago I heard what it was doing, um, and at that time I kind of, you know, at that time I liked it. Whereas now I look back on on the music we we're making two years ago and I hear it and I think, God, that's so embarrassing. How how could we ever have even played that to anyone? You know, and hopefully. In two years' time, I'll look back on the music we're making today and think the same. Um, well, they so do think- say the same thing about podcasts as well. So I suspect we'll be <laughs> listening back to these early episodes in a couple of years and, and feeling the, the very same. But you, you make an interesting point there about uh, that ability to connect with users at an emotional level. And that's perhaps particularly important in this area where you're trying to engage with users at a creative level. Uh, we've been looking at this theme, if you like, of creativity and how it differs from the way users behave when they're, say, just consuming a piece of content for a little while now within the Mex community. And it does seem that there are some particular bits of user behavior, some particular expectations that come around that level when you manage to do something uh, creatively with users. Now, Obviously, you've got the Duke Deck user experience in this initial rollout to a certain level, an impressive enough level that actually um, we chose it as one of the user experiences of the year when we were looking back over 2015 in the, the MEX community. Um, but have you found particularly useful user experience techniques have emerged which have allowed you to really hone in on what can establish that emotional connection for you with the users and how you can encourage that spirit of creativity yeah what are some of the things that you've been trying with your user research and with the way you look at feedback to make sure that you are getting that kind of connection with your users um, yeah, well, I mean, firstly, we're honoured uh, to, to be featured on your list. So thank you very, very much. We, yeah, we put a lot of time into our UX, and we're we're, we're glad you think it's uh, it's not terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, we've we, we've we've thought a lot about it. We've we've um, we've as I said, we've done lots of uh, lots of interviews, and we you know we take notes on on every single one. We really try not to shape what people tell us. We try to listen as much as we can. Um, and I mean, I think one of the biggest things that maybe came out of that for us was this. This idea that people wanted to feel like they were creating this. Um, I, I think one of the one of the one of the funny things about video creation is that one of the only bits of it that people don't have much control over at the mu- at the moment is the music. Um, and you know, we really got that impression from talking to people. And actually, so being able to shape to to kind of frame this what we're doing this product as something that suddenly gives you creative control was really important to us. But there's a there, there's a difficult thing there because. Most people don't see themselves as musicians. So how do you how do you put a tool in someone's hand that makes them feel like they're involved in the creative process when they don't necessarily feel confident enough to do that? And I think we've done a couple of things 
in order to get there. One, we've tried to make it super easy uh, to get involved, to start creating on the platform. So we have a big call to action on our front page with some very easy controls uh, and there's just a big blue button that says, make my first track. Uh, and it really, I think, hopefully encourages you uh, to do that. And so, so you can kind of start to see that actually without too much work, you can have creative input. Um, and secondly, we have focused on those inputs and made them um, made them hopefully accessible to everyone. And I think by doing those two things, we really hope that we can get people who wouldn't necessarily have thought that they could get involved in the creative musical process to realize that they can be. And that's, that's been one of the best things for us as we've been building uh, and, and, and building this and taking it out to people is just seeing the kind of joy of creation. And that, that's really a big focus for us, being able to, to go to people and give them this creative tool and see them be kind of delighted when they, they kind of realize that they've, they've made this, um, this piece of music that they never, they never thought they, they could make. And we've, we've had tweets from people saying, you know, thanks so much for, um, for giving me this tool that lets me make music. Uh, we've seen people use it in fascinating ways. And that is a big thing for us, kind of trying to, um, to, to kind of inspire creativity, musical creativity in more people than necessarily think uh, they have it. It's interesting that you use that word confidence. I mean, if you look at what's happened, for instance, around smartphone photography, you could perhaps trace a similar sort of pattern there where a much larger number of people now, because of what's happened with image processing and the ability to apply filters, now feel more confident to share these creative expressions than perhaps they would have done before the advent of that kind of technology. But how do you find that plays out in the user research part of this when, for instance, you're doing those interviews that you mentioned, is there an issue there around getting people to talk about their interests in music and talk about their interests in creativity um, where you need to help them get over that sort of first stumbling block so that you can get some really valuable insights out of them rather than just the surface level stuff? Yeah, I mean, well, firstly, I'm, 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 I think it's a really interesting point and I totally uh, agree with it. And I don't think it's just... Uh, photo sharing Instagram I think even with things like writing I've I've been inspired to write much more um, basically because of the platform medium um, because it just makes you know it makes your writing look so nice it makes it super easy to to get started and you know you don't have to kind of worry about all the overheads um, and I think yeah things like Instagram medium all of these things I think they they, they, they kind of get your work, your creative output up to the level where, as you say, you're confident in it, which I think is an absolutely brilliant thing. And I think if we can, if we can do that uh, a Duke deck for music, we would absolutely love to. Um, yeah, uh, but as you, as you say, it has been, it has been a little difficult, um, especially in user research, um, because, you know, obviously when you're, when you're doing your preliminary user research, you don't necessarily have um, a product to show to people. And so it can be hard to, to convince them of something. Um, and definitely in our early user research, you know, if we kind of, if we kind of said, and we tried not to lead people too much to, to form conclusions, but if we had, if we did say something like, you know, we, we could provide this system, would you, would you use it? Um, it could definitely, we found that it was hard for people to get their head around exactly what that would mean, because this is a new kind of technology. It's not something that people are used to. Uh, and maybe that, maybe the same would have happened had you taken Instagram or a medium to people two years before they launched. Um, I don't know. So I, I do think, I do think there's a, there's a gap between what people um, inherently think uh, is possible and that they could do uh, in terms of creative output and actually what technology does now and will soon enable them to do. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a definite gap there. And I think ultimately 
as with everything, the, uh, the best way to overcome it is to actually have something you can put in people's hands, uh, you know, and start getting them to use it. And that's, that's really the, the change in understanding that we've seen. As soon as we, uh, you know, we launched just, uh, just in December, and as soon as we got it out there um, and, and had people start using it, we just suddenly saw this kind of stream of, of, of feedback of people saying, wow, I look at this track I, I just made. Um, and I think, yeah, you, once you have the tool, once you have the thing that people can use, um, that's when I think the understanding arises. So presumably now, in addition to the interviews that you were doing with people around how they felt about the product and the prototypes, now that it's live, you must be getting a stream of data coming in about how people are actually using it at a, a click level and at a more of a, a quantitative level. Uh, how are you combining those two streams of insight, if you like, to think about where you go next with it? Are they both equally useful to you? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, obviously, um, once you have the kind of data you're talking about, which we do now have, that's incredibly useful. I mean, you, you stop having to rely on kind of four uh, tweets that you've received, and suddenly you can look at, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of data points, which is which is absolutely great. I mean, how do we combine them? We A big thing we, we, we get from the data is kind of which types of music on our site are doing the best, um, which is which is incredibly useful. Um, we know it, you know, it teaches us which ones we have to work on, which is which is just really, really, really great because you know we can see that the kind of the electronics doing the electronic music is doing really well, um, but actually maybe another style, um, you know, people try it but then don't download it so much. So suddenly you can say, okay, well, there's a reason they're trying it but not downloading it. Let's uh, let's do a bit of work on that. Um, so so we use it for that kind of thing, and yeah, I think. I do think it's about the combination, though. I think there's, I mean, obviously, the, the, the learning that we get and that you can get from that sort of data is amazing. But it's, um, it's so powerful to go and actually speak to people because you, I, I think by speaking to people, you learn stuff that's not on your site, you know, and that sometimes can be the most important thing for a business. Like, it's not necessarily about kind of which, where have we put the right, where have we put the button? Have we put it in the right place? Um, but actually, you can be talking to someone, you can realize you've made a completely false assumption that has nothing to do with the buttons on your site at all. Um, but is, you know, you're, you know, uh, up to the point where you might be going for the wrong market, or you might be targeting the wrong people, which you wouldn't necessarily find out just from analytics alone. So I think, I think you've got to do both. And we, we still try to speak to a lot of people as well as, as having that analytics in place. And how do you manage that exposure to user behavior within the team? I mean, you're, uh, I guess at a certain stage of progress of the company, you, you've had uh, funding, as, as I recall. Uh, and what size is the team now? Uh, we're fourteen people. Okay, so you know the, the company is, is growing. I guess it, it's going through to that that next stage of, of growth. Um, but how do you uh, manage that um, channeling, if you like, of, of the user insight among the team? Um, does everyone get the opportunity to see? what the users are doing and then to hear that sort of um, feedback or is that something where you have specific teams working on that part? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for everyone to be exposed to users and to their feedback, definitely. We, and uh, it's difficult, it's more difficult for us because we are predominantly um, uh, on the development side. Um, but we do, we try uh, our absolute best to make sure that everyone is exposed to it. So we do that in a number of ways. I mean, one, we use Slack. We have a, we have a feedback channel um, that everyone can and does uh, subscribe to. Um, and uh, we often, if we get incoming feedback, we'll just post it on there, which is, uh, which is really useful. So anyone can just dive in and see it at any point. We also have a kind of um, 
we have another channel which is for um, videos we've found or we've been sent uh, where people have used our music. And so that's really nice because we just have this kind of constant stream in Slack of, uh, of videos using our music. So we can always see how people are using it, which is, which is really useful. So we, we do do a bunch of stuff. At the same time, we could always do more. Um, one thing I'd like to do more is actually, um, you know, have, ha have more of us actually speak to users. Uh, that, that's one thing that is still limited to, to a few of us. And I think, I think, uh, it's important for everyone in the, t in a, in a team to at least every so often get out there and actually speak to users. And that's something we could probably do more of. So I guess the user experience side of it was the part which really caught my attention initially. But then when you and I started talking about it subsequently, what I started to understand was that there is this real deep technical expertise behind the machine learning and the artificial intelligence, which is going on in the background. What part of, of that excites you for the future? You know, when you think about where this could go and how far you could develop it in the context of music and creativity, is there a particular bit which, you know, has really got you thinking about its potential? Yeah, I think I think to be honest, there are there are two bits that really, really excite me. One is kind of what we've been talking about, which is facilitating creativity. I think just, I mean, the first time we, we it was it was a surprise, but we, we, we just got this tweet from a user who um, had created uh, had created a, a track using Duke Deck and had put her own vocals over the top and made a song, and she was just thrilled um, that we provided her with the tech that could give her a backing track to do this that she could use, and that was that was just one of I think you know one of our best moments really seeing the kind of joy that that can bring someone is something that really excites me and something that we want to look into much more. How can we facilitate creativity? How can we help people be more creative? Um, so that's one big, big part that excites me. And the other, the other I think that, that, that we're really driving for and we're really interested in is personalization. Um, this idea that, that at the moment music is, you know, it's this kind of thing we consume, um, uh, sometimes without paying it too much attention, uh, and you know, it's 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 almost. I mean, it's quite mass market, really. You know, we all consume the same thing, the same music, the same kind of music, um, even though we have our own tastes within that. And we're very interested in the idea that actually, music doesn't necessarily have to be about that. Music can be much more personalised. You know, our news feeds are becoming personalised. Um, so much in our life is becoming personalised to us. Music is. I think a bit behind in that regard, and I think once you once AI is involved in the music creation process, you essentially have a system where where that music doesn't need to be the same every time you listen to it. And if it's not the same every time you listen to it, you can start to actually personalize it according to to who's listening, to what they're doing. And this is this is all kind of in the future for us, but it's a it's something that really interests us, and we've seen that um, just just in video creators liking the fact that they're getting their own music. You know that that's almost the biggest thing for some of our users that this is theirs, that this is this is unique, and no one else is using it. That kind of personalization in music, I think, can be really powerful, and we find it super exciting. In our previous episode, uh, Alex, my co-host for the podcast, and I got talking about um, some of the things that are happening around intelligence, digital intelligence becoming embedded in our surroundings. Uh, and one of the examples we were looking at is the idea of how, for instance, your home can respond to you as an individual user. And we were talking about the possibilities of, of just that, of, for instance, personalized music, depending on what kind of day it was. And I think we were thinking of it in the context of being able to select particular existing tracks. Um, but it, it sounds to me as if you're suggesting that 
in the future, we may be able to actually generate tracks dynamically on the fly uh, to suit people's moods or people's personalities, say, in their home environment, which is a, you know, an exciting prospect. But are there particular variables that would be useful to you and useful to the Jupdex system that you could take as inputs to kind of govern those choices and work out you know, what is going to be an appropriate piece of music to play someone when they come home from a hard day at work or when they're waking up on a you know, bright, sunny Saturday morning. How would you make that kind of difference and what kind of variables could you use to achieve that? Yeah. I mean, well, firstly, I'm, yeah, that, that is kind of what it's, what's on our mind. We're, we're, um, we're, but we're not the first to, you know, think, I mean, actually, I don't know if you've seen the film Her, um, but uh, but in it, there's a great scene that I remember seeing once we'd already started Duke Deck and thinking, oh my god, that that's where we're trying to go, and where where Joaquin Phoenix is kind of talking to the the AI in his phone, um, Scarlett Johansson's voice, um, and uh, he he sort of says, what are you doing? And his phone says back to him, oh, I'm I'm writing a piece of music. We don't have any memories of ourselves together. Uh, we don't have any photos. So I thought I'd kind of you know write a uh, write a piece of music to capture this moment. And he says, play it to me. And she plays this beautiful piano piece. Um, that, that of course in reality was written by Arcade Fire. Um, but you know, the idea in the film is that this is, it's a piece of music that is, that's, that's for that moment, that's written for him. And you know, you, as you can see in the film, it's just so powerful and you can really imagine it being an incredibly powerful idea. So that really is, you know, we, we find that incredibly interesting. In terms of what you need in order to get that to work, um, I mean, obviously, one side is having the, the the tech that can actually write the music, but as you point out, what are the inputs? Um, and I think, I mean, I think there are a whole bunch you could use, and I think that you know, hopefully, by the time we actually get to the stage where that's what our tech can be used for, and it's at that level, um, other companies uh, will have absolutely nailed um, getting inputs from our device, and I think companies are already doing it right. I mean, the amount of data that you can track on your phone, on your Fitbit. Uh, is is just is just absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, our phones know they they know our calendar. They know if we're between meetings. They know um, how quickly we're moving. They know how far we've walked that day. They know who our friends are. Ultimately, they have access to our music library, right? So they 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 know what kind of music we like. I think a combination of those things: what kind of music you like, what mood you're in. I think is a big one, and that's something that our phone doesn't quite know yet, but I imagine it will soon. Um, and you know, then you've got things like the, the environment, the time of day, the weather. Um, I think these are the things which, which could really be used um, to provide that, that idea of a kind of soundtrack, a real-time soundtrack. Um, I, d I don't profess to have any answers yet. I just I think one day we're going to be listening to music that's written for us on the spot and that reacts, and I think those are the kinds of things that are going to affect it. So Jukedek is based in London. Uh, was there a particular reason why you chose to establish there? Um, I mean, are there things going on in the community in London around machine learning and artificial intelligence which make it worthwhile for you to be there while you're trying to launch a digital experience like this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, uh, the honest answer is no, there weren't things like that that drove us here. I mean, we, um, you know, we, we, we started this when we left university and uh, everyone we knew moved to London. Um, it was just kind of what you did. Um, so, you know, we were living in London and this seemed to make sense. Having said that, I think we've been incredibly lucky for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, we kind of started it at the kind of that new wave of the tech scene. You know, things were really getting going in kind of 2011. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think we've kind of enjoyed kind of riding that wave as the tech scene in London grows. 
um, which has been great to see. Um, and, you know, obviously, machine learning, um, English companies, British companies are, are doing really well. You know, you've got companies like like DeepMind. The fact that that they're based here, I think, is incredibly exciting. But also, I think, kind of culturally, musically, London's an incredibly exciting place to be. I mean, you know, arguably, we're we're one of the musical capitals of the world, if not the musical capital. Um, and and what's particularly exciting for us uh, at, at Duke Deck is that we've got um, a few universities uh, in London that really specialize in music informatics and the kind of thing that we're doing. Um, London is, is, I think, the place for that. So we, we think it's the perfect place um, just for, for all those reasons. Uh, and I think, you know, having, having known a bunch of startups who've been getting going in the last few years, I think, I think a bunch of people feel the same. London feels like a pretty good place to be, to be doing this stuff. Well, as you say, with that combined strength from the, the musical side and from the digital side, yeah, it perhaps creates quite an interesting environment. And it actually reminds me of one of the things that I was discussing with Alex before we did this interview, which he was quite interested in, in talking to you about, uh, was um, this idea of how this kind of digitally created music might follow some of the patterns which are established within traditional music, if you like, that often you'll have uh, music being reinterpreted between artists or a composer uh, reinterpreting another composer and sort of riffing, if you like, on on each other's work. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you see that playing out once you start to introduce machine-based composers into this? Do you think we're going to get into a situation where you have humans which end up reinterpreting bits of machine-made music, or perhaps even machines reinterpreting the music made by other machines? Is that something which you've thought about how that might actually flow into the, the overall quality and type of music which is produced? Definitely. And I think it's, you know, it's not an either or. I think, I think once machines can do this, uh, it's, it's going to kind of flow both ways. And I, you know, we're, we're already starting to see both of those happening right now. I mean, we actually, we had a, a musician we really liked get in touch um, after we launched who tried out our product and said, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is great. I really, I really like it. I'm a producer. Um, I, I, I'd quite like to use some of this, um, some of these notes, some of the MIDI, uh, the actual kind of um, score of the music uh, as inspiration for, for my own pieces. Would that be okay? And I think, I think that's definitely something this kind of thing can and will be used for at the same time as you say you can definitely you know because of the way these kinds of systems work they can definitely work iteratively and they can definitely inspire keep keep kind of inspiring further iterations of music so i think that is as you identify i think how music works at the moment i mean i i don't really think that any composer has ever sat down and had a true blinding flash of inspiration that that doesn't in some way relate to the music they've heard before i've certainly never been convinced that's ever happened to anyone. I think you know the way the way I think that we that we write music and that we're creative in general um, is that you know we we take everything we've heard or we've seen and we you know we rejig that and we you know it all comes to it all comes to bear when we sit down at the, the piano and we start writing our piece of music and I think that's how it works with machines as well and I think once machines can do this as I say it will it will work both ways. It's just. I think AI will be another source of inspiration for people, as we've already seen when people when people use what we're doing as the backing track for their song or as inspiration for their song. It's already happening, so I think it can, it can only become more of a thing. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out into the development of the the Duke Tech experience. Uh, you say you've just launched a new 
piano instrument uh, as part of the, the service. And also, uh, I know you're going to be speaking at our MEX event in March and talking a bit more about some of the work you've done uh, around the, the user experience of Duke Deck. Um, but what for you is the next big step this year? What are you looking forward to as you think further into uh, the, the second half of the year? Um, I think, to be honest, the, the big thing that drives me in a, in a big way uh, and a lot of our team is, is the kind of, is just the quality, is the, the excitement we get when, when we make those step changes in quality. You know, when we, because this, this is a system that keeps improving, we keep working on it. And, and I just, I'm always excited when I think, when I think back to how it sounded a year ago um, and look at the progress we've made and, and I think you know we've got we've got such, we've got a team that, that that are just absolutely great now. We've really built up a strong strong team to do this with everyone kind of um, having a huge amount of input and making a massive difference to what we're doing. And I just look at the team and I and I think you know this is this is the right bunch of people to really to really make this great. And so I'm basically just excited about the kind of music I think we can make through it. I think we can I think we can make this really good. And and that that is I think what kind of gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, it's an inspiring note to end on, I guess. And thank you very much for taking the time to tell us a bit more about Duke Deck. I'm going to be looking forward to your session at the event in March. Uh, and it's going to be great to catch up then. Thanks very much, Ed. Not at all, Mary. It's been a pleasure. And I, I, yeah, I can't wait to speak. today's edition of the podcast with another user story, part of an ongoing series at mobileuserexperience.com, which looks at the wonderful and often surprising ways in which people are using technology in the real world. This one is all about a lady who lays a trail of digital breadcrumbs to help her navigate an unfamiliar place. club the other night the kind of thing where people get together around a big communal table even if you don't know each other beforehand and the idea is you sit down and talk and get to know everyone around the table and you have some nice food and the chef comes out and explains a little bit about why he's cooked what he's cooked and this one luckily enough was at a venue sufficiently nice and a chef i guess of sufficient quality that when I sat down at the table opposite my partner and we looked around, you could tell everyone had kind of dressed up a little bit, like they knew this was going to be a little bit of a special occasion. Anyway, the lady who was sitting to my right, turns out, had come from a little bit further afield than the rest because they particularly liked this chef who was cooking the dinner that evening. And we ended up getting talking, as you do, about what it is you both do. She was there accompanying her husband who was going on to a, a business trip the next day and they decided to combine a bit of work and pleasure and we got talking about what I did and I explained that it was something in technology and the first thing she says to me is oh I'm hopeless with technology and then goes on to tell me a story about how the other day she took her iPhone into the O2 shop if you're not in the UK, O2 is one of the big network operators here that has a, a lot of retail chains around the place where you can go and buy your phone and get customer service. And she said, I took it into the O2 shop because I hadn't been able to get any calls or texts for about a week. 
You know what it was? She asked me. Well, they turned around to me and said, it's because you don't have your Wi-Fi switched on. Anyway, they sorted it all out for me. So uh, my phone was up and running again, but I'm hopeless with technology. So we got talking a little bit more about this and she was explaining the thing is I never know what to do with these things and I feel bad because I know they can do so much but I need someone to tell me what it is I can do with all of these devices oh but I use my iPad all the time though now love the iPad I mean mainly for shopping she says uh, but I can just whoosh through things like this and she starts making these swiping gestures in the air to show me how she whooshes through the things on her iPad. The laptop, the laptop, she says, hasn't come out for months. It's stuffed under the sofa now. And it got me thinking a little bit about what's been going on within the tablet market recently. We hear tales in the business press of how the tablet market is plateauing and how it hasn't really reached that initial potential which people thought it would when the iPad came out and everyone was so excited. But I don't know if that's really the full picture. When you actually go and talk to users themselves, people tend to love their iPads, particularly in comparison to the other devices in their life. There's a real fondness and loyalty to the iPads. And of course, people don't change them or upgrade them quite as frequently because I think there was a quality of experience achieved, even with those earlier models. The iPad 2, for instance, is still in widespread usage at the moment, even though that's several years old now, because there was a certain quality to the experience which people are happy to stick with. So some more courses of this meal come out and everyone's having a good time. And she starts to tell me another story about something that she did with her iPhone. She said, oh, I did something very clever the other day with my iPhone, as if she was just remembering for the first time that, in fact, she did have an example of how uh, she'd been pretty adept with her technology. She explains, well, the thing is, I'm OK with maps when I'm driving, but if I'm in a town, I'm going shopping, I go into stores and when I come out, I've just got no idea where I am. I get all turned around when I'm in a shop and I can't find my way back. So the other day, when I went into this new town that I was visiting for the first time, I thought to myself, I'll take some photos. So as I was walking around, I would take a photo each time I turned a corner or each time I went into a store of what it looked like from the outside. And then when I came out of the shops, I could flick back and she starts showing me how she did this flicking again with the, the whooshing gesture like she was with the iPad in the air. I could flick back through these photos uh, and trace my way back to the car. And you know what? I made it back to the car. And she sounded delighted that she had managed to, to navigate this trail of digital breadcrumbs, as it were, back to the car. And I asked her and said, well, were you looking at where these photos were plotted on the map on your phone? Is, is that how you did it? Oh, no. And she didn't. You could sort of tell from the way she answered it. She didn't realize that the photos may even have been tagged with her location. I was just looking at the photos so I could look up and I could see, well, there's that street sign there. And that was that corner that I turned. And she'd managed to find her way back to the car like that. And of course, it reminded me that so often, particularly when you're working day to day with a particular set of technologies 
or you're in an industry where you start to accept these practices of how things are done, you start to miss these bits of user behavior, which you could never really predict that someone would find that way, if you like, of hacking the system to come up with a solution that worked for them. And this obviously had worked for her. She was delighted with the fact that her trail of photos had allowed her to get back to the car and and got over this problem she has of navigating in cities. But it was a bit of behavior that in a lab environment or if you're sitting around brainstorming, trying to work out the next great location-based service, you'd be unlikely to ever come up with. As is often the case, fact can be stranger than fiction. it for this episode. Don't forget the show notes in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com and that you can send us feedback on Twitter at Mexfeed. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.